Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. In Ursula Villarreal Mora's debut collection of linked flash fictions, Math for the Self-Crippling, a young woman navigates a life in San Antonio that will launch her unexpectedly to geographies and states of being far beyond the barrio of her youth. Bracketed by the profound influence of her great-aunt Fatima and her grandmother, as well as a cast of family, friends, and partners, the narrator paints a picture of uncertain transitions from youth to adulthood, from stuck at home to homesick, from love-struck to lonesome, in an unforgettable voice, both wry and poetic. These are stories that stretch the capabilities of language, asking the reader to imagine whole generations of a family undergirding her narrator's life story. Ursula plays at each end of the spectrum of invention, offering scenes of dreamwalking positioned next to domestic dramas beautiful in their restraint of language. Easily read in a whirlwind sitting, these stories will stay with you long afterwards. Ursula was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. Her stories, essays, interviews, and reviews have appeared in various publications, including Tin House, Catapult, Prairie Schooner, Story, Midnight Breakfast, Gulf Coast, and Bennington Review. It is such a pleasure to welcome Ursula Villarreal Mora to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's so excellent to have you here today, and I just love this collection of tiny flash fictions that do so very much. This has been a strong couple of years for collections of linked short stories, but I think yours is the first linked flash fiction stories that I've read at least recently. Why did you decide on a story that would stand on little slivers of narrative? That's an excellent question. Um, You know, when I first started writing Flash, um, I had no dreams, um, aspirations of writing a Flash book. Um, I started writing Flash because I just didn't understand it. And um, 
eventually I had so many flash stories that I realized that there was definitely a narrative arc, a narrative thread going through them. And I thought, why not put this book together and see if it's if it stands on its, you know, if it has two legs. And it did. Um, and so I can't say it was really intentional to write a book of flash fiction, um, but I'm grateful that I did. And like you, I, I love the form, but I can't say that I know too, too many books um, that link stories of this length. No, I was I was sort of racking my brain to think of any, and uh, I can certainly think of plenty of people who've written flash fiction, but none who've linked the stories. And I think there's a there's an ambition there that I really admire. And is this the form that has been predominant for you in your writing, or are you more a traditional short story writer, and this is a a, a kind of one off for you? How does the micro form fit into your larger career? This is definitely a one-off for me. Um, but now that I've embraced the form and I feel somewhat um, comfortable with it, I am looking, I'm thinking, you know, down the line, I would love to challenge myself and write in this form again. Um, you know, I know three books from now or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I'm a very... Um, I think when I went to graduate school, at least, I was a very rigid person in how I understood storytelling. I really thought stories had to be, short stories had to be at least four pages long, if not, you know, up to 20 pages. I really only wanted to read traditional work. I wasn't really into anything experimental. Um, But of course, in graduate school, I was introduced to so many different types of writing of different lengths by, you know, people with, you know, was obsessed with form or voice or imagery. And um, it really kind of uh, opened my eyes in a way, but also um, got me really curious about um, what was possible for someone who was so staunchly traditional the way that I was. Hmm. And um and so I started reading a lot of Flash um, after graduate school. And and then, you know, it was kind of like a challenge to myself. Like, can I do this? Can I, you know, the person who loves 14-page short stories, can I write a story in one or two pages? And will I actually like it? Will it be satisfying to a reader? And so, so that's what happened. Well, the, these are certainly not traditional, I think, in any way. And they're very, they're adventurous and inventive. Um, there's so much poetry in here as well as as prose. Um, but I'm interested in in thinking a little bit about how these stories are a meditation on growing up Latina in San Antonio. For your narrator, San Antonio is a pole star, both the center of her family universe and the thing that she cannot seem to get enough velocity to escape. Why did you want these to be San Antonio stories? Growing up um, in San Antonio, I never saw San Antonio in anything literary, in any books, in any essays. Um, we did have Sandra C. Snedos living in San Antonio when I was there growing up, which was... Oh, I didn't know she lived there. Yeah, it was a gift. She was there for many years. Um, she lived in a, a purple house, actually, in... Um, a neighborhood called the King William District. And unfortunately, it's a historic district in San Antonio. And they had a lot of um, 
regulations, housing regulations. And she lived in this very eccentric purple house and the city was constantly fighting with her about whether it was suitable for that neighborhood. You're kidding me. (laughs) No. And so she was always kind of like in a legal battle with the city. And so eventually I think it became too much and she left. But I was fortunate enough to grow up um, in San Antonio while she was there. And so I got to go to a few of her readings, which were amazing and she's such a generous reader and person and but I never actually you know read anything in school that was said in San Antonio everything was like New York or another country or um, even like deserts or different places and I really was just insistent that I had to write a book about San Antonio because there are so many people there as a population, I think now almost 2 million, like 1.7, 1.9 million people. And it's just, I couldn't find anything um, set there. And I thought it was such a unique city with such a distinct personality that I really wanted to set stories there. And, um, and it just be kind of a little homage to, to readers and people growing up. Yeah, and I, I, I myself have not encountered too many things set there, um, and if they are, it's sort of a glancing thing rather than a kind of a, a depth and a, a knowing way of setting it there. I, I love the city. I think it's an amazing place. I've only been there once, but I was really struck by how special it was, and so I'm glad that we have these. You, you set up San Antonio to have a kind of binary opposite in the mind of the narrator, and that's New England. The narrator will dream of a kind of frosty landscape that might be different from some of the hardships of her childhood in Texas. She'll eventually go to college in New England, where she discovers that it's no utopia, just a place with different kinds of troubles, different kinds of racism, where during a college hookup, the blonde boy mentions that his housekeeper is from the same country as the narrator's family. Why did you want to put those two geographies in conversation? Um, You know, I think that it's very easy um, to romanticize a place that a person's never been to and to feel like they know it just through films and TV and books. Um, And that's what happened with my narrator. She felt like she knew this place uh, just because, you know, oh, it's cold there. People eat soup. They have different types of blankets. (laughs) You know, these like really superficial things that she thought, you know, constituted, you know, a, a, a people, but she forgot about the people. Um, she only th- remembered, you know, thought about the things. And so I just thought it was, you know, this is a coming of age book. And I think it was really important to show that, um, that kind of disillusionment of yearning for something or a place and then getting there. And sure, the things might be there that you thought about, you know, this, you might be eating soup, but there's also going to be some tension Um, especially coming from a place that's so radically different. Yeah, I can confirm that soup is readily eaten. But yes, that's that's so true, isn't it? That you will have these imagined places. I think for a lot of people, it's New York City or sometimes L.A., where they spend their whole lives imagining that that is where the potential for their self will bloom. And yet, as you say, it's evacuated of people because they haven't actually lived there. Definitely. So... Race is a kind of binding agent between some of these stories. Your narrator experiences racism and discrimination, including finding her family home 
robbed with no neighbor willing to say they saw something and yet somehow unconcerned that they might be next. You texture the way in which race is experienced by the characters in these stories and it changes in the geographies that come to define the narrator's life. And in that texture, it's not dulled by being a kind of generalized racism. How did race emerge into the world of this book? Well, you know, I have to say when I was writing it, I, especially the story with um, when her family is burglarized, I didn't actually think about racism there. And this might be my own experience as a person of color that um, it's kind of an everyday part of life. I mean, not every single day, but there's just some sort of like erosion that happens that, um, that I think is just taken for granted in a sense. Um, but I think that when Tatum experiences it in San Antonio, it feels really different than when she experiences it in New England. Um, in New England, it feels like racism um, because she is alone, because she is so outnumbered mm. um, and it is so pointed. Whereas, um, you know, when she experiences these episodes in San Antonio, um, she she has her family there. She doesn't feel the blow of it quite the same way. So I think that, um, I think, you know, depending on your environment, your surroundings, um, if you have allies or support, you know, these microaggressions or straight out, you know, racist moments are going to feel different. And some of them might feel manageable even, um, and others just feel so utterly devastating that, you know, it's just breaks a person. Hmm. Yeah, that's really uh, beautifully said. There are little moments of magic dotting the landscape of these stories. Seances, levitations, entering the dreams of others. And like the best kind of literary magic, they defy an easy explanation. To give us a sense of how magic operates in your stories, could you read the first story, Envelope First, 1953, for us? Absolutely. Envelope First, 1953. A ring of adults holding hands, burning candles, chanting. A series of levitations visible through the window. Tia Veronica claims she and Mama witnessed a seance from their cousin's backyard. Inside the living room, their frumpy aunts, half-drunk uncles, parents, and strangers summon spirits with one synchronized hum. First an envelope floated off the table, then the gingham tablecloth spun off in a gust. Finally, the table bobbed as if riding a cosmic wave. Fried chicken and white biscuits, Tia Veronica and Mama agree, is what they ate for dinner that night thighs, and a twilight game of jacks or hide-and-seek, depending on whom you believe. The levitations, Mama refutes. When asked to explain them, she shrugs. Her tightened shoulders suggest a mental ruse, a hologram of boredom. Thank you so much. You're very careful in these stories to never do any explaining of things that fall somewhat outside of what we think of as the the normal rules for reality. Is it difficult to sort of maintain that sense of the enigmatic here to say that this maybe 
you know, in in the mind of the reader might exist as as something real, paranormal, or maybe is understood as the sort of lore of a family, because this is a story sort of projecting back into the past, thinking about how stories develop lore over time. What's the difficulty of kind of holding that tension around these magical elements? So I grew up, you know, my childhood, um, this book isn't autobiographical, um, but there are some elements that come from my life. And I grew up in a family that was very religious. And I think that even anyone who has any religion, there is a little bit of mysticism in the, in that it relies on, you know, some sort of magic for most religions. I, maybe Buddhism doesn't, but, and so I grew up with this belief in so many possibilities and they weren't explained to me. It was just like, oh, it's, it's possible that might happen. And I, you know, as I got older, grew out of that, that faith. And also, sadly, I feel like I left behind a lot of wildly imaginative possibilities in my life. And I really wanted to capture that in this book. Um, I really wanted to kind of live in that realm of like, maybe that's possible. And so I wrote it in such a way that I think leaves room for interpretation. I think the reader can decide for themselves if they believe this or if this is just some sort of like whim or fancy of the narrator or their family. But I my other writing isn't like this. And it kind of makes me sad, to be honest, because I think there's some elements of, you know, mystery and magic that are just so fun, both for a reader and for a writer. And so it's something that I didn't really try too hard to capture. I think it was just came kind of naturally. Um, and it's something that I hope I can return to again in the future, just like I said, you know, earlier that I want to write another flash book at some point. I do want to write a book that's a little bit more magical and that doesn't necessarily lay out the laws of the universe to explain what's happening. So for Tatum, magic seems to explain a world that otherwise feels enigmatic and sometimes even perverse. Does that magic sort of filter in as a way of explaining things that are for reasons that are unclear to her, unexplainable in their difficulties, in in the pain that they cause her, and in other ways just uh, in, too enigmatic to be explained without these sort of uh, um, elements of magic? That's a really interesting read. I think so. I think that especially for young people, for at children and adolescents, the world is very puzzling. And sometimes um, there isn't a very plausible or satisfying explanation to why something happened. And so it's easier for Tatum to navigate the world to just chalk it up to, oh, that's what happens. That's kind of magical or it can't be explained squarely away. Um, so I think I think you're onto something there, Chris. I would have to agree with you. Well, it it then cued in for me a little bit with the title, which I find wonderfully evocative math for the self-crippling. And I wonder if the, and, and I should note that the cover is very beautiful and has a, a sort of horizon line with the tops of houses. And then in the background, there are these magical equations that sort of sit behind a blue sky. But that felt a little bit like, like magic as well. Could, but could you talk about the the title and how it resonates for you in these stories? 
Sure. Um, first, I want to share kind of a, a funny, silly story, which is um, a week before the book's release, I had a nightmare, as most writers do before, you know, something <laughs> important happens. And in the nightmare, I was trying to remember the title of my book, and I just couldn't for the life of me. You could have thrown all the money at me in the world, and I just couldn't. And at the very end of the nightmare, I um, was fumbling around, and I found a stack of my books. And I thought, oh, great, now I can, you know, see what the title is. And the title was, Oh, Little Tools. And I was devastated. I thought, <laughs> oh my gosh, how could I have named my first book, Oh, Little Tools? Um, and I wanted to die, just like, what a misstep. And then I woke up, you know, and I screamed, math for the self-crippling. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, I spent, you know, quite a bit of time when I was writing Flash, just very fixated on words and the lyricism, the, you know, the imagery that I was creating. And, um, and the title of the book came from one of the flash pieces that's inside that's about halfway through, maybe closer to the end of the book. And it just felt like the perfect title for that particular piece about a young woman who is revisiting a house that she lived in with her family when she was very young. And she remembers herself um, just struggling with math homework. And so it felt like the perfect title for that piece. And then when I started to think about putting it together as a book, um, I had a couple of titles um, and I tried other ones out. I named it after the last piece of the book and that didn't feel like it encompassed the entire collection. And so in another, you know, round of revision and reimagining of the book, I came up with Math for Self-Crippling and it felt satisfying. It felt like, yeah, that's it. That's that's what it's going to be. Well, it, it certainly is satisfying for me and it, and it resonates in all these uh, different ways. But I want to return, you were, you were mentioning your, your interest as you were writing it in the sort of lyricism and, and poetry that is coursing throughout these stories. And one of the things I love is that you often end them with these little koans, um, these poetic riddles of unstated meaning. In one, you conclude with, quote, in metallic ponds, minnows convulse like nervous blood cells. Beneath the surface, a Loch Ness lurks in search of believers. That ends up being a great description of how you leave yourself ominous things lurking beneath the surface of these stories. So how do you hope that readers will experience these poetic signs of all the things that are left unsaid? I hope that they can, that one, that they find them satisfying, but I imagine everyone will come away with something slightly different. And that was the aim. The aim was to, um, to not put a bow on them, to let them just sit and resonate, um, kind of like a tuning fork. I remember when I was in school, um, whenever my music teacher would strike the tuning fork, I would just sit there kind of in awe watching this, what the sound was doing around the room. Um, and just that kind of like how time stretched out. Um, and so hopefully if they're successful, hopefully they do something akin to that. 
I think they do. That idea of stretching out time uh, really works in a lot of these stories. There's one of my favorites uh, on, on a trip to Barcelona. Tatum's boyfriend leaves her unexpectedly alone in a chocolatier's. There's the understanding that this marks the end of their relationship, even though it's a seemingly an innocuous event. The story finishes with the two admiring Picasso's pencil sketches. And there's enormous amount of trust that you're putting in the reader to be able to sketch out how this re relationship might unravel un over that stretch of time, as you put it. How does that trust work from the writer's side of the equation? Well, I have to say that I think um, something that I didn't have in mind when I was writing it, but something that I've since read is, you know, write for the smartest friend you know, or, you mm -hmm. know, something along those lines. And so um, I, that is one of my aims. My aim is to entertain um, the reader, but also to uh, trust that they, that their mind is just so complex and can do these puzzles with, with me. And so that's, that's, I guess, part of how this book is maybe operating is um, hoping that the reader is engaged on such a level that they're willing to um, put in a little bit of the work to um, figure out this puzzle. I love that fondness you have for your, your readers. That's really lovely. Um, am I right in thinking that you have a, a novel that's going to be forthcoming fairly soon? And, and if I'm right, uh, would you talk to us a little bit about what it's about and how it came into being? Yeah, sure. Um, so I do have a novel. It's finalizing the edits right now. It's going to be coming out sometime in 2024, maybe March or April of 2024. Um, it is a novel also about Tatum. She is in college. Oh, that's college. fabulous. <laughs> she's in college and she's having a very isolated college experience. She's away from home. She's has some friends, but the connection isn't really what she was hoping for. Um, so she writes a fan letter to her favorite author, just as sort of a, a cathartic exercise, just to say and acknowledge that she really admires this person's work. Um, and, and just kind of, and this is, uh, I guess it's a historical novel in that it takes place uh, before the year, before Y2K, before 2000. Mm. Um, so she, it's a physical letter. She doesn't send an email. Um, so she kind of you know, sends it off in the mail and, you know, obviously hopes for a reply, but really the exercise was about her and just expressing these sentiments she has. But the writer actually responds. And sends her a letter back maybe a month later and they embark on a friendship and the novel traces the next 12 years of Tatum's life um, and the role that this writer plays um, in shaping her both as a reader as a woman as someone you know living and, and trying to self-actualize um, and so that book is radically different from this book. I mean, it, they both contain Tatum and, you know, there's this New England, this thread of New England schools and, and hopes of self-actualization, but um, there's no magic in it. But I'd like to think that hopefully there's some poetic language in it. We'll see. 
I can't wait for it. It sounds fantastic. And I'm a, a huge fan of campus novels and I, I teach a class on the campus novel. And I feel like that's a, that's a subgenre that's really evolving rapidly. I feel like, um, you know, for a lot of the 20th century, it existed as sort of like a hangover from interest in British boarding schools. But now it's turning into something really fascinating and, and in many cases, quite an American form. So I, I can't wait to to see Tatum in, in this new environment and, and see how that works out with her relationship with the writer. I wonder, before I let you go, um, will you tell us a little bit about what you've been loving that you're reading recently and, and maybe some, some recommendations that you have? Absolutely. Um, I just want to say real quick that I, the first love of my life was the campus novel and boarding school novels, and I read so many of them. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's um, so great. I, I love them all. And um, and to be honest, I think it was after I sold my novel that I realized, oh, I also wrote a campus novel. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so as you know, Chris, I am obsessed with reading. And I have been looking forward to this part of the interview so much because I just want to talk about books all day long. Me too. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so recently, the books that have really stood out to me, um, one of them is The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval. Oh, I love Victor Laval, although I haven't read that. Oh, it is wonderful. I am thinking about teaching this book in the summer. Um, I read it for uh, in October for a creepy, you know, October reads or spooky October reads, whatever people do. And I devoured it. It is brilliant. I highly recommend it. I also read Deep Water by Patricia Hyde-Smith. Mm. She's one of those people where I'm always embarrassed that I've never read her because she is, you know, she's foundational in a lot of ways to, to almost anything with, with suspense, but also someone who does genre so beautifully. But I haven't read her, so I'm excited, excited about this one. Oh, you must, you must. I'm now obsessed. I read two Patricia Hyde-Smith books this year, and this one, so I did read The Price of Salt, which I love and recommend, but this one is just Deep Water is the most psychologically nuanced book I have ever read. And for, you know, I think it's so hard to maintain that kind of suspense for 200 plus pages, and she does. Um, and so I highly recommend that. Um, then I am reading currently um, A Minor Chorus by Billy Ray Belcourt. He is a, um, a Cree writer um, who is living in British Columbia, but the novel um, is about natives, native life in Alberta, Canada. It's really great. And then The Town of Babylon by Alejandro Varela, which was just nominated or recently nominated as a finalist for the National Book Award. It is so brilliant. It is so funny. It is a very Gen X book. So if mm. you like those, um, so many references to music and just Gen X culture. And then the last one is The Bass Rock by Evie Wilde. Um, she is a UK writer, and this book takes place mostly in Scotland. It alternates between Scotland and London, and it follows the storyline of three different women in history living in different time periods, but all that kind of revolve around this Scottish town that has this, um, this bass rock, this like 
rock formation. Those, that's the, the most wonderfully diverse list of books, and I've read none of them, which doesn't often happen, and I'm, I, they sound really exciting. I can't wait to sort of dig into them and, and, and see what they have to offer, so I'm thrilled that you um, were able to give us this. I, I feel like you should have your own podcast recommending the things <laughs> that you love. <laughs> You know, it is my dream job. Um, recently, you know, I tweeted something about how right now there's kind of a renaissance happening for a lot of, you know, for in publishing for Latinx and Native writers, and that it, it breaks my heart when I see on Goodreads that someone's read, you know, 90 books and none of them have been Native or Latinx writers when there's so much going on right now mm. that to read around it just feels like a, a shame. And I tweeted that and Roxanne Gay said, give me some book recommendations then. And that it just made my day because I just love recommending books and it would be my dream job to recommend books. Um, so thanks for giving me this opportunity. I, I think it sounds like you must have the podcast <laughs> now for all kinds of reasons. Well, I'll be waiting for that and also for your forthcoming novel. But Ursula, thank you so much. It was such a delight talking to you and I can't wait for people to enjoy your incredible flash fictions in math for the self-crippling. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to Ursula Villarreal Mora for a lovely conversation about her debut book of linked flash fictions, Math for the Self-Crippling. You can find that title and Ursula's amazing list of recommendations at the website burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our latest episodes and book recommendations. Later this week, I'll be talking to Meg Howry, whose latest, They're Going to Love You, is a must-read for 2022. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs>